This is Kevin Lavelle, and you're listening to Founders 15. You know what the world needs? Another business podcast. Well, actually, maybe it does. See, I've listened to a lot of podcasts, many of which were truly great. I learned a lot and had takeaways that changed my business or personal life. But I often noticed there was no commonality between the interviews as they were wide-ranging, so it was harder to tease out themes between them. I launched Mizzen and Main to bring advanced performance fabrics to traditional menswear. So just like deciding the world needed a better dress shirt when everyone said it was crazy, I decided to launch Founders 15. Founders 15 is a unique new discussion experience, distinct in three specific ways. The conversations will be founder to founder, eliciting an enlightening back and forth of two people with an overlap rarely found in other interviews. In my position as founder of Mizzen and Main, I've gotten to have extraordinary conversations with other founders, and I know that there are takeaways that a lot of people would benefit from. So episodes will also feature the same 15 main questions in each podcast, helping bring a continuity to these discussions with appropriate probing on key themes as they develop throughout the interview. Perhaps most distinctively, I'm focused primarily on founders building something right now, and not just the billion dollar unicorns that get the headlines every day. These interviews feature real people building real businesses today. Business titans from years ago offer much to learn from, but my focus is on those in the heart of their journey to build something great. To keep things particularly interesting, I'll also be interviewing a few well-known athletes and coaches, founders in their own right, to gain additional insight and inspiration as to what it takes to achieve greatness. Would love to hear any feedback anytime. I'm on Twitter at Kevin S. Lavelle, and I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I've enjoyed having them. Heidi Zack and her husband started Third Love, a company changing the way women think of what's possible, mixing form, function, and fashion when it comes to undergarments. In six years, they've grown their team to over 250 employees, and over 10 million women have used their custom fit finder on their site. More importantly than the growth of the business and some of the key ways she was able to do so, I took away from this the impact that a leader like Heidi truly can have from a team and culture perspective. Don't dwell on the past is one of her core company values, and it's part of how she's able to stay not only sane, but truly joyous in juggling being a CEO and a mom to two little ones while trying to make sure to enjoy all that life has to offer. Recording this conversation reinforced why I think this podcast is worth doing. It was both educational and it sheds light on the unique journey that founders take. Hey, Heidi, glad to have you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining us. So would love to start off and just get a little bit of context on uh, Third Love and you as as an entrepreneur and founder. Uh, so would love to hear from you. Yeah. So Third Love is a direct-to-consumer bra and underwear brand, and we really focus uh, on fit. And we do that in a few different ways through developing better product, like our half-cup-sized bras through our Fit Finder, which more than 10 million women have done to find their size, and really through marketing and content that resonates with what I call the modern woman. So if you think Victoria's Secret is on one side, I would say we're on the other side. Um, Yeah. And really the focus is to help women feel really comfortable and confident in their everyday lives. Amazing. And and how long ago did you start the company? 
Oh man, founded the company or left our jobs. My co-founder, who's also my husband, and I left our jobs in mid to 2012. So it's been over six years now. Wonderful. And um, do you have, uh, you're based in San Francisco. Tell me a little bit about your family situation. Yes. So we are um, based in San Francisco, live in San Francisco, and we also have two little kids. So I have a daughter who's about to be five and then a little boy who's almost two and a half. So it's busy. Yeah. Very, very busy. I've got a 20 month old son and it is the greatest joy in the world and um, puts a lot of things in perspective, but man, I forgot what it was like to actually have free time. Totally. And it's also funny when you're in your house and you're and you realize that they're not listening to you and you're not used to it. And you're like, but usually I tell somebody something and they at least listen to me <laughs> or pretend. <laughs> and then you realize, right. yeah, the little ones like sometimes choose not to anyway. <laughs> uh, sounds, that sounds amazingly familiar. Um, so you guys have experienced an extraordinary level of success in the last few years. You said 10 million women have used your fit finder tool. Can you go back to some of the key nuggets of your launch story? Because I know you put a lot of time into those first products and getting something off the ground, but you've, you've shared that story before in, in other outlets. Can you talk to me about kind of that first prototype to when you decided to launch to when you launched, what was that process like and what, what haven't you shared about that part of the journey? Yeah. So I think starting out, our goal was really simple or it seemed simple, which was to design and create a more comfortable, better fitting bra. And I remember in my head thinking like, how hard can this really be? Right. And then, um, it's, I think every entrepreneur goes through this. Every founder goes through this. You think that it's going to be easy and then you start delving in and then you realize how much you don't know. And then you realize how difficult things really are. And it generally brings you to a low point in your journey when you just are worried that you're not going to be able to figure it out. And so for us, that really stemmed around manufacturing and trying to find the right manufacturer. So we spent a good part of the first year um, just trying to find manufacturers who would even talk to us, let alone sample product, right? I mean, even just to get a conversation was difficult. I mean, we had no website, we had no brand. Uh, these manufacturers were like, who are you? You're, it could be some yeah. made up thing, right? It's really and remarkable how difficult it is to say, I'd love to give you money. <laughs> and people just have zero interest in that conversation. <laughs> Correct. Right. And, uh, I, I think it's also inherently right for a manufacturer. They're thinking about scale and how much time they're going to take away from their other clients or who they're working with. And so Absolutely. in the early days, as you know, as well, right. With product development, sampling and the iteration process when you're starting out is very, very time consuming. And then once you have the product and you've nailed it, then manufacturing becomes very, very easy. I wouldn't say completely easy, but so much easier than it is at the beginning. Yeah. And so, you know, there was a lot of iteration. And I think what we really struggled with at the beginning was it was really about the inputs going into the bra and a bra has 30 components. And so each of those components really coming together will create something more comfortable with a better fit as well as the specs. And so we were pushing to use high quality as high quality items as we could to go into it. And the manufacturer was pushing to make something as cheap and as easy as they could using kind of what they were used to. And I think that was the, you know, that was what was really, really difficult and kind of coming out with the first product and truth be told, like the first product wasn't good. 
And we basically lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. We walked away from manufacturing in Mexico. We shifted to Asia. At that point, we had figured out a lot of things and we knew what our supply chain should look like. And we used that to kind of re sample relaunch product from Asia. And that in essence was the core of what third love is today, but it was the year of floundering. It was a year of pain and it was a year of losing a lot of money. It's funny. I, I was so proud of our first product. And when someone tells me today, I still have one of your first shirts. It's like, I don't know what I need to do to get it back from you, but please don't show that to anybody. <laughs> totally. So, totally. um, heard a little bit about the initial stages of product and with how much you've grown. Uh, I know I've heard so many great things about your company culture. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you define it and defend it on a daily basis? Because it's not something that you can just put up on a wall, although we did just put ours up on the wall for the first <laughs> time, but you do have to live it every single day. Talk to me about how that works at third love. Yeah. So I think what I've learned over the past six years is that culture really stems from the team. It stems from who you hire. And in order to hire the right kind of people, you need to figure out what makes people successful and what you want the culture to be. It's sort of chicken and egg. It just took us a while to figure that out because I think we were hiring people that seemed good on paper, but that weren't connecting at the company and weren't maybe working out long-term. And so Today, we actually hire based on our company values. So we have certain high-level values that we actually use in every interview. And we ask anyone who's getting interviewed to rank somebody based on those. And they're kind of inherent principles that either are shown through an interview or are not. And I think in that way, we've actually been able to hire better, hire smarter, and um just have people jump right in and fit in. And that doesn't mean everyone's the same, certainly not, but it means inherently there's a few tenants that kind of bond us together that we don't have to train people on. Yeah. It's amazing to hear you say that because in the last few months, we just had this realization ourselves in the same capacity and we changed our entire interview process to be fundamentally around each person that interviews is assigned a value and they're supposed to dig in on that specific value. And then everybody comes together at the end. So how, how do you take that from the hiring process into the day-to-day? Because it sounds like you, you have unlocked a really exciting formula to get the right people in, but then what happens every day? I mean, for me, one of our, one of our values is being passionate or, you know, um, passionate about what you're doing and passionate about what we're building. And so part of that stems from somebody's internal kind of compass and what drives them and and who they are. And part of that comes from being connected with the mission of the company and really understanding what we're doing to impact millions of women's lives every single day. And so especially as we were grown and we just passed 250 people, it's a very different point in time for us. And I used to know and talk to everyone every single day. And now I don't, right? I just inherently can't. And so for us, it's really about doing more all hands meetings, doing those on a more regular basis, and also making it less about me or my co-founder talking all the time, and really about other senior leaders talking and communicating as well. Because as I've said to them, like they're they're also an inspiration and they're doing amazing things. And we want everyone at the company to feel connected to that. So I think it's through weekly, you know, weekly updates, monthly updates, and then 
all the things that we do that are not in the office, I think, make us stronger as a team as well. So we do, you know, events every month or twice a month sometimes. And I think those are the moments where you really get to know somebody outside of the office. And I hear over and over again, like, oh, my God, I talked to somebody that I didn't know. I made this connection. Um, and somewhat off topic, but sort of on topic, I'll just talk about it, is that I was at Zeitgeist this year and I was listening to a speaker and he was talking about what makes people happy at work. And he kind of went through this list of what people think make um, team members happy at work. Like it's their manager, it's what they're doing day to day, you know, it's, you know, the perks and this and that, right? Like all these things that companies talk about. And actually, what it boiled down to, and he did this huge study globally, right, was that the number one factor that influenced how happy somebody was at work was, do they have good friends at work? Do they have friends at work? And that really stuck with me because um, all those other things that I mentioned, of course, yes, they matter. But really what matters is, are you creating connections among your office? And in order for that to happen, people need to get to know each other. So I do think having events that allow people to connect is hugely important. Absolutely agreed. We we do um, once a month team outings and from three to five. So that way people don't have to sacrifice their personal life outside of work. Um, we do a, a, a mandatory team outing. And I say mandatory because the number of times that people say, oh, I'm too busy. I have too many things going on at work. And now we've we've made clear you we are mandating that you come and have fun together. And uh, <laughs> that's a that's an odd word to put in front of it. But it ends up being really important to get people out of the office and, and get them engaging because it's tough. Building a business is, is very hard and you run into tough situations together. Yep, totally. So um, 250 people, that's extraordinary growth in six years. Uh, I You mentioned the, the tough days kind of floundering early on, um, not needing to get into any specific number, but how long did you go early on without really making much of a salary or making nothing at all, just making sure that the company was uh, going and growing. And then, um, you were finally able to start paying yourself something that you could kind of really live on rather than hoping that things were going to get better. <laughs> Longer than I would have liked, it would be the answer to that. Um, no, I guess, uh, I don't think we took a salary for the first six months. Um, we bootstrapped, put our own money in. And then once we raised a seed, we started paying ourselves, but it was definitely under a hundred thousand dollars for a while. So, and that's in San um, Francisco. And that's in San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> right. So years, right. years of right. that. And, you know, really what it boiled down to was we had enough savings and we believed in the company enough that yep. it made, we always said like, we would rather take that money and hire a rock star who's mm -hmm. going to help us achieve what we know we can do yep. than to pay ourselves more. And yeah. When I hear of founders paying themselves in seed and A rounds, like these salaries, I'm just like, I would never angel invest in your company. If no. that's what you make, yep. there's isn't something like inherently wrong right yep. there. Priorities so, are not aligned. Yeah. So um, when you think about you and your husband took a huge leap of faith to go into this and you obviously believed a lot in what you were doing, uh, I'm going to preempt and say you're not allowed to say your husband if, if that's what you were going to say. Um, and if you weren't, then I can have taken that away from you anyway. Um, who most inspired you to go on this journey? Was there one entrepreneur that you said, I want to emulate what they've done or because they did it, I feel like I can, or was there someone else in your life that really made you believe that you could and should do this? That's a, it's a really good question that I've never been asked in that way. Um, I, there isn't a specific person that I could name, but what I will say is that I was never one of these people who 
you know, had a lemonade stand or went door to door selling XYZ or kind of always considered myself an entrepreneur. That was not who I was. That was, wasn't my background. I had more traditional jobs. I had worked for bigger companies. And um, what really, really inspired me to even contemplate starting something was moving out to Silicon Valley, 100%. I mean, I was in New York before, New York and Boston, more traditional jobs. And when I moved out here, I took a job at Google which is a very large startup, but still part of this broader idea of tech, right? And innovation. And um, at Google, this idea of failure is actually a good thing and why. And crazy ideas are are something that we should be excited about. That was something completely new to me. I had never been exposed to that. That coupled with... Uh, being introduced and seeing many people starting businesses. Um, in fact, I remember I went to, in 2012, when um, Dave and I first moved out from New York, we went to the Lyft holiday party. At the time, Lyft was called Zimride, and it was about maybe 20 people. Wow. And they had this little office in Soma in San Francisco, and we went to the holiday party, and they had Costco pizza. And I remember wandering around talking to people, being like, you guys do what? And this like ride-sharing thing. And I, I I would a was confused by the whole thing, and and but I was also really inspired because everyone was so passionate about what they were building, and in my mind I was like, this is really freaking cool, right? And so that certainly wasn't the only moment, but many moments like that I think made me eventually think to myself, hey, I could do this too. There is there is something truly inspiring about being around it and other people and. Um, I know Steve Case has spent a lot of time trying to promote entrepreneurialism throughout the United States because that ecosystem of Silicon Valley is very hard to replicate. But um, that's a that's a great testament to the the environment that one puts themselves in. So with with living in San Francisco and a startup, two young kids, there's a lot on your plate. What do you do to stay sane on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? Um. I, A, I think one thing along the way I've learned to not dwell on the past. It's actually one of our uh, other company values here as well. It's this idea that every day is a new day. And I really do try to live that personally and professionally. So I think part of staying sane is that you can't be sane if you're constantly stressed and like worried about all the stuff that already happened. And so when stuff goes wrong, which inherently happens every day, right? And it happens a lot, especially in the beginning of starting a company. I think learning to let go and move on was part of like just a coping mechanism for making it through. And even today, like if something goes wrong, I will really come in tomorrow and be like on the next page of my book. I'm not going to I'm not going to spend a lot of time and energy on it. I think that's one point. On a more personal level, I like to work out. I used to work out a lot more before I had two little kids. Um, <laughs> however, <how> changes. <laughs> I'm a huge advocate and fan of Peloton, and I have a Peloton, and I do it at least probably four or five times a week. It's an amazing workout. It's in my house, right? And it takes me, there's literally no complaining about trying to get there. It takes two seconds to get on the bike. And, um, so that's like what I'm doing right now, but I, I do love working out. I think it's, you know, important to stay healthy and focused and it just makes me feel better. Do you and your husband work out together? Obviously you can't do that on one Peloton, but do you, is that something you guys share? Or do you keep that separate? 
We used to. So we, before we had kids and before we started the company, we did, we did a lot of triathlons. So we actually did an Ironman together in 2012, right before we started the company and started having kids. Um, so we used to do a lot of biking and running and swimming together these days, not as much, but I think that'll change like as the kids get older, but yes, we used to. <laughs> I, I hear it. Um, I, I, my workouts went from an hour and a half a day to if I get 20 minutes in, I feel, I feel great. Exactly. Um, so talking about feeling great, if everything would be quote unquote, okay, while you were gone and that could be your kids are with, you know, family or your kids come with you, but your business is set, uh, your leadership team has everything they need and you don't need to worry about a thing. What would you do for a single month if you could leave it all behind? I would go be a ski bum for a month uh, somewhere in Colorado. Uh, and I would bring my kids with me and throw them in ski school and then you know spend part of the day with them and part of the, the, the day skiing and just literally do it every day. I've always wanted to do that and I've never had the time, I guess, or the resources to do it. So that's what, what I would do. So, uh, recently, uh, had this conversation with, uh, Simon from sweaty Betty and his answer was exactly the same thing, which is <laughs> remarkable. There's a, there's a trend here. Um, so when you think about your personal life, uh, and obviously, uh, family is, is all consuming in its own way. And, and so is being a founder and an entrepreneur, how would you describe kind of how starting third love has affected your personal life? In many ways you get to, I'm so fortunate that I can craft a little bit more of my own schedule than a lot of my friends who are attorneys or consultants or bankers, and I can go be with my son in a different way, but it's also, it's never off. It's always going. I've got weekend trips for work. Um, so it's, it's this interesting balance. How do you think about your sacrifices in your personal life versus the benefits of being an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think that, um, I think that, Absolutely. It never turns off. So there's always that piece. But I would say on the whole, I wouldn't ever trade it. I'm sure you would say the same thing. Um, I think also part of it for me is really, there's something, you know, people always do refer to this as like mother's guilt, right? And I think, and I'm sure fathers have guilt too. So that's probably a very sexist thing to say. Um, and so I do think that sometimes I get that feeling of like, oh my goodness, you know, I'm not at this thing at preschool or I'm not here or I have to go to like, I'm speaking at, on Halloween this year somewhere. It's, you know, there's these things that happen that you sometimes can't say no to. Um, but at the same time, I've also learned to say no a lot. And I think that's been a big learning as, especially as we've grown and scaled, like I can say no more and I don't have to say yes to everything and I can pick and choose. And so I actually think over the past year, my, my personal life has improved a lot because I have way more flexibility than I did in the early days of a company. And, you know, in some ways I, I do, I think I deserve it. I worked really, really hard to get here. Right. Yep. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's definitely things that you do at certain points that you're maybe not as proud or happy that you had to do, but I think it does sometimes pay off at a certain point. That's I I, I love hearing it, and it's good affirmation for as as we grow in our journey. I've um, made sure to start to prioritize a little bit differently. I will say, I signed our investment documents in the uh, delivery room with mm -hmm. my wife um, for our last investment round because we needed to keep things moving, and you can't. You can't time things perfectly, but the good news for us was 
my wife was our CMO for um, almost four years. So we were a <laughs> husband and wife team as well. And I definitely got a little bit of an eye roll, but she knew exactly <laughs> where we were. And, and, and that was a, um, a, okay, do what you need to do, but you better get over here real soon. Um, it wasn't in the <laughs> thick of that. it. It wasn't in the thick of it. It was, it was, uh, <laughs> Jack was already born, but, um, so when you think about the, the, uh, rocket ship that you've been on for the last six years, you and I were speaking a couple of weeks ago about the try before you buy program, which you guys have done an amazing job with. And you talked about how much that changed your business. Was that the real tipping point that, that changed third love's trajectory? Was it something else? And, and then the follow-up to that is with that tipping point, whatever that ends up being, how have you tried to replicate that in some way? Have you tried to take that and, and do something again or do something differently inspired from it? Yeah. So I, I definitely would say if I had to pick one thing at the try before buying program was the program that allowed us to scale marketing, reach a lot of women and get them to try our bras. So without that, I don't think I would be here today talking to you. So Absolutely, that program, because of its value proposition to the customer, because of its uniqueness, um, really helped us get get our message and brand out there. Um, of course, then, as it took off and as our business scaled, there were a lot of other factors that helped us get to where we are today. I mean, it's, it is interesting, though, because as we've evolved, and I, I think we had talked about this, you and I, but a very small percent of our new customers now use Try Before Buying because referrals are so high and word of mouth is so high. Most women, if they're going to try it, they have a friend or someone in their network who can vouch for Third Love, who will recommend the brand, who has tried the bra, and it makes everything very different. So, you know, we're talking a lot internally and we have some new things coming, you know, between now and the end of the year where there'll be different types of programs that are really um, meant to solve other things within our business. Um, and Try Before Buying will likely even maybe go away for us by the end of the year because it's just not a necessity anymore in our business. Have you tried to do, have you tried to take that innovation that you guys really have done, I think, a better job of this type of program more so than anyone else I've seen? Have you tried to come up with another, what's the next try before you buy? And, and certainly not an iteration of try before you buy, but how you think about setting up a business process. H has anything else come out of that experience and how you guys structure and run your business? Yeah, totally. Because I think really what try before buying came out of was, it was us saying, our CPAs on Facebook are $350. This is completely not sustainable. And if we don't figure this out, we will not exist in six months, right? And so it was a moment in time. We were solving a certain core issue to our business. And today, it's not as dramatic, but there's definitely two, th call it one or two things that we've talked about internally, which I can't talk about right now because we haven't launched the programs, but there are still core things that we're trying to solve. And we've, we're creating programs that address those needs. And I think that's really what you need to think about as a company. It's not like, you know, this, right. You, you don't do one thing and continue to do it for years. It's, yep. it's, you gotta, you gotta know when something has reached its potential and then move on to the next thing. And you need to do it more quickly and better than everyone else in the space. Yeah, we are, our, um, tipping point was when we sponsored Tim Ferriss's podcast, um, three years ago, and it just changed everything about our business. Um, we basically couldn't keep anything in stock for a year and we continued to sponsor it and, and it still did well for us, but not anything close to that initial 
boost mm-hmm. because there was so much newness associated with it. So it's not that it's not still a great vehicle for for um, businesses and advertising. It's just that pop is almost, you can't replicate that type of explosion um, as much as we've tried. We've, we've tried other podcasts and there's something special about Tim's audience that a new introduction with that type of um, kind of endorsement really changed the game. But you can try and do it again all day long and it, you got to find the next thing. So mm-hmm. um, I'm excited to hear when, when this new process comes out, I'm going to know that we heard it here first, that it's coming. Totally. So It's coming soon. Good. <laughs> um, it probably will not affect my life personally, but we will, <laughs> we will get there. Um, so six years in, what about 10 years from now? Where do you see uh, third love in 10 years? Or if there's some other time horizon that you think of? Yeah, I mean, I expect we grow this into a multi-billion dollar company. And more than that, it's really about being a brand that is a household name and that a brand that women really respect and love and are happy to be associated with. You know, if we can achieve all those things, then, you know, I will feel completely awesome. And um, so when you th- when you think about a billion dollar brand, the the biggest one in your category that comes to mind would be Victoria's Secret. So do you see extending into additional categories outside of what you're doing to get there? Or you think the market size is so big with your core product that you're not even going to have to think about those adjacencies for a while? I think eventually, for sure, adjacencies will be interesting. But bras and underwear alone are $15 billion in the U.S. and $100 billion globally. So it's a huge market. Uh, so I think focus is also really important, and especially when you're the smaller company trying to take on the larger. I think having focus really helps. So right now, we're not really seeking to expand categories. It's more about expanding our size range to offer more sizes to as many women as possible. Looking forward to seeing where you guys go. It's been amazing to see what you've done in just six years. So if you could go back to the beginning, and I, I, you talked about this a little bit at the the start of this. If you could go back and tell yourself one thing to do differently at the beginning, and it, and it might be, you know, don't trust your manufacturer that you start with, but I'm sure there's there's more to it than that. What would the one thing that you would tell yourself looking back now, six years in? I think the biggest thing is that um, is that I spend a lot of time not being 100% sure of decisions that we're making. And this is true today. It was true six years ago. And that's okay. And I think it's realizing that you're never going to have 100% clarity or 100% of the information that you're going to need. And you still have to make decisions really quickly. And that's, that's totally okay. Um, because I think at the beginning, I used to think, oh, my goodness, I should take more time and do more analysis and talk to this other person. And then you just realize, like, you don't have the time to do that or you don't have the resources. And you you do what you can with the resources you have. You make decisions and then you move on. And that pace is incredibly important. And so I, I guess my biggest thing that I would tell myself is, like, it's okay to not know with 100% certainty or even 90% certainty. It's, it's, it's okay. So stemming off of that. What has been your single biggest regret, uh, other than not knowing this from the beginning, what would be your single biggest regret over the last six years with respect to third love? I, let's see, I would say, I mean, truthfully, I don't know that I have what I would call regrets. I mean, yes, are there decisions that reflecting backward in time that I would have made different decisions? Maybe. 
Um, but maybe not. It's all part of the journey. And so, you know, I look at each moment where we made a mistake as a learning opportunity for sure. Uh, and I don't know that I regret anything that we've done. We've, I've done the best I could at every moment in time. And it wasn't always the right decision, but on average it worked out, you know, that, uh, that is very apparent from how you talk about your values and, and how you think about not dwelling on the past. So not dwelling in the past, thinking about the, the positives in the present and moving forward, what brings you the most joy every day in your life? Definitely our customers. I, I'm very involved with our customer experience team, our fit stylist team. Uh, I'm constantly asking for um, positive and negative potentially interactions that um, fit stylists are having. I respond to you know customer emails a lot um, over the course of my week. And um, a good a good story that I think shows how we do things a little bit differently is recently a woman wrote in and she said, I'm a customer. Um, I'm 50 years old. I love your product. I got your catalog in the mail and I flipped through it and nobody in here is my age. She's, she's around 50. And she's like, I look and feel great in my bra and I want to see more women like me. And she attached a photo to the email of herself in her t-shirt bra and somebody from my team forwarded it to me. And, you know, I don't know what most people would do with that at a company, but <laughs> I, I, I responded to her and I said, you're awesome. Thank you for the feedback. You look great. And like, do you want to come model for us and be in our catalog and be in our next catalog and be in our emails and be on our website? And she said, yes. And so she's come up, she's done a photo shoot. She's done a video shoot. You'll see her name's hope. She'll be in a lot of materials in the next few months. And um, I'm super excited to have customers who love our product. And I'm also very happy when they give us feedback and when they tell us what we're doing wrong or that what we can do better, because that's what makes us better. And so that's sort of, those are the, the moments that make me feel really good about what we're doing. That makes me, it's, it's a truly awesome story and speaks to why people care so much about what you're doing. If that's how you respond to customer feedback, it reminds me of the movie, the intern with Anne Hathaway <laughs> and Robert De Niro. Have you seen that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a corny movie, but it, it speaks to those entrepreneurs and founders who care so much about what they're doing, that they will do whatever it takes. Even three, four five, 10 years in, they're still the ones that, that want to make sure customers get what they deserve, which is a fair trade on value for turning over their hard earned dollars. Totally. So, um, on a fun note, um, and I'll, I'll, sh I'll share first. So I, I give you a chance to think about this and then also, um, don't put you too much on the spot. My most embarrassing professional moment and, uh, made me smile when you talked about all the, all the people and that you don't necessarily know everyone we're, um, with summer interns right now, we're at about 45 people in our office and, um, we're hiring quite a few more people, uh, every month. And I, three times in the last two months have walked into, we have a 9am standup huddle where everybody talks a little bit about what they're working on that day. Uh, and I've just kind of hopped right into the huddle and started talking and, um, someone has to flag me and say, Kevin, um, this is, uh, this is Stephanie. She, she just joined today and wanted to make sure that you get to meet her. And I mean, you just kind of roll with it and everyone laughs because there's so much happening all the time and everybody's okay with it. But I would say not knowing that there's a new person in this room of people that I see every single day is pretty darn embarrassing. And at least my most recent professional embarrassing moment. So how about yourself? What's your most embarrassing professional moment? Um, well, this is embarrassing and also was 
a, a, a bad financial thing that happened to us in the early days, as I know, I'm sure you can relate to, you do the job of everything, right? As the founder, because you, there is no team. And so at the same time we were working in Mexico, I did all of our purchase orders. I did all of the purchasing and placing of orders. And I told you we did all of the supplies coming in to create the product. And so I was ordering cotton for underwear and, um, and it was late at night and I was actually in Mexico at our factory. And so I was placing purchase orders at, at like 11 PM after a full day in the factory. And I was tired and probably not looking at the details. And I forgot to, um, do the calculation correctly. And I ordered about, um, 10 times more cotton than we needed for one of our products. Oh my God. And so, and you know, this is what we had very little money and every dollar really, really, I mean, every dollar matters today, but this, you know, different point in time. Yes. And um, so anyway, I have no idea I've done this. And then maybe call it like two, three months later, the product ships from LA down to Arizona where it's going um, from Arizona over the border in Mexico, it gets dropped off at our factory and they're expecting one roll, basically one roll of a, a wide roll of cotton is what they needed for the specific product. So the, the team there sends me this email and they're like, Oh, the, this, the, the, the company must've made some kind of the supplier must've made some kind of mistake because I opened we opened the truck and there was 50 rolls of cotton in the truck. Oh my God. And I literally, all of a sudden, it just dawned on me. Like, I I was like, oh, my goodness. I totally forgot to, like, I, I must have missed a decimal point or yeah. whatever it was, you know. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's, and we had, they had dyed it. It was, this is not resaleable. It was, you know, this oh. was, I think it was, you know, 100,000. I mean, it was some crazy amount of money and there was nothing for us to do with it. It was really bad. I lost a lot of money and it was super embarrassing. I mean, I actually cried about it. I remember starting to cry because I was so yeah. overwhelmed and upset and yep. just mad at myself and embarrassed. Yeah. It was completely embarrassing. So anyway. <laughs> I, it's amazing that you're, you were able to immediately know I made that mistake and not go, well, clearly they made a mistake because I wouldn't. It's uh, that's a, that's a level of humility that comes with those early days and knowing that you are not you know, you are not all powerful. Um, yeah, we've had some, I don't think we've ever had an, a misorder that big. We did have, <laughs> we, we had a whole run of, of new, it was a new collection that we were introducing and all the sample testing, everything went perfectly. And we greenlit the shipment of the actual production. Cause you know, sample and production fabrics are different looms and different everything. And the tests that we did were either at the time insufficient or they goofed and did something again on the sample. And, half the fabric shipped, we paid for it and our cut and sew and, and fabric mills are different. We're not fully, fully, fully vertically integrated. And our cut and sew called and said, I don't think you want me to make these. And we did this testing and tens of thousands of dollars of, of fabric was just a disaster. It was wrinkled beyond, I mean, it was, it was unacceptable fabric. And so we just ate it. Um, all that fabric we basically just destroyed and We've never worked with that mill again, but that's what happens with yeah. fabric. It's painful. Yeah, very, very <laughs> painful. The, the testing at the mills is so, so critical. So um, with all of these fun things that happen and misorders, do you expect, you You talked about building a multi-billion dollar brand, so I think I know the answer to this, but do you expect to be doing this for your whole life or do you want to build this to a certain scale and then you, you want to try something else? What, what's your long-term vision for what Heidi does professionally? 
well, whole life is, I don't know, it depends how long I live to be, you know, God (laughs) willing here, but um, I don't know my whole life, but yes, I think for the foreseeable future, I mean, I'm having more fun than I've ever had. I love what we do. I love the impact we make and I can't, I can't even imagine doing anything else. So yes, no, no near term um, thoughts about leaving or anything like that or selling even so. So, uh, it just dawned on me that we've had this whole conversation about third love and I forgot to ask, cause I usually forget to share about where the name Mizzen and Maine came from. Where did the name third love come from? So really third love, it stemmed from this idea of creating a third option. So this idea of bras that are either comfortable or stylish, but not both mm-hmm. or having to be a B cup or a C cup, but it doesn't work for you. Um, or having to have marketing that looks a certain way. So the third love is really that third option. And that's really what we've created with third love is other options for women. That I, I love that. Did you come up with that or did you work with a partner or an agency? <laughs> Both. But um, we actually, the third actually had originally come from our first office was on third Third Street. And so we really liked the idea of having that number in it. And then we kind of tied that back into sort of why we created the company. So from two to 250 people in six years, how many offices have you had to be in? Um, we're in our sixth office now. So one per year. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Um, so to, to close out the the serious questions, and then we'll get back to some fun ones. How do you want to be remembered as a founder and an entrepreneur? Uh, so what's really important to me is, uh, is really helping others grow and achieve, you know, their full potential. So obviously I want to impact millions of women's lives, helping them feel comfortable and confident. That's what we do day in and day out. But when I think about the company and the people that I've gotten to know, it's really about helping other entrepreneurs. It's about, um, helping other people see that they can build something as well, especially females. I mean, obviously we all know there's a lot less female founders. So I really take that, um, to heart and I angel invest in female founded companies. Um, not that many, but a few, I really do try to take calls and help people out when I can, because I think those are the kinds of things that people really do remember and are so important. Um, so that's what I'd love for people to say about me. That's the work that you're doing is really important. Um, and as we put through the list of um, guests that we're excited to be able to interview. It, it started with a list of, of folks that I've either worked with or know. Um, you know, it's it's a challenge to find other companies at scale that are female-led founders, and and so love the support that you're doing there, and um, excited to be able to hear your perspective on this. How did you um, how did you and your husband initially start delegating out who was doing what? Talking with Simon, he and his wife founded. Sweaty Betty. And he said, you know, she is the creative, she is the vision and I am the back of back of house management. That's just how we function. And it's worked really well for us. How did you guys find your balance in the very early days where both of you, of course, doing everything. And then now at this scale, you guys are still working together and obviously very successfully doing so. I think it's a little bit different for us and from other um, founding teams where there are a lot of times, there's a good amount of husband-wife teams out there. Um, We actually overlap more. Of course, we do have 
an org chart and a structure with who reports to who. But he manages, quote unquote, like the tech product, but I'm very into UI, UX, and I know what's going on. I technically manage marketing. He's very familiar. He's had some of the best ideas about marketing that we've done. Um, you know, advertising on radio on Sirius was completely his idea. And so I don't think we actually, our lines are actually more blurred than most. And I think for us, at least it's worked really well and I'm not recommending it. It's probably not for everyone, but I think actually the fact that we know what's going on in all aspects of the business just makes us smarter. It's one more person who's thinking about it, um, is how I, is how I always describe it to others. That's great. Um, so that thus concludes our very serious portion of the interview. And this was uh, a great conversation. I've, I've enjoyed the time that we've been able to spend um, kind of mind melding in the past. And, and this was a, an awesome conversation. I hope people found a lot of value out of it. Now for the rapid fire questions, hopefully some good nuggets of wisdom and some very humorous responses as well. The rules for rapid fire lightning round are just answer as fast as you can. Don't worry about context. And sometimes it's fun to see what comes out of this. So um, starting off your morning routine, how many hours of sleep a night do you get? Eight. Solid. CRISPR is a new gene editing technology that's making waves. If you could do one thing to edit your genes, what would you use CRISPR for? Nothing. I think it's strange. <laughs> <laughs> that's very fair. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of side effects here. Um, what is your favorite fiction book and nonfiction book? Fiction, I'd say anything by Margaret Atwood. I really love her as an author. Uh, nonfiction, latest and greatest, Mastering Leadership. Awesome book about leadership. Great. What is your daily music playlist theme? What do you like to listen to throughout the day? You know I listen to Sirius because I've talked about it a bunch of this. <laughs> um, so they have a new station called Lithium, and it's 90s rock. And I know every word to every song. So uh, great. And it's amazing. If anyone hasn't listened to it, I highly recommend it. So great. Great plug for series and for Lithium. What is your wake up drink of choice and wind down drink of choice? Uh, wake up um, coffee with soy creamer. Like got to have the creamer and it's got to be soy creamer. And then wind down, it depends, either nothing or wine. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There, there's certainly plenty of nights that we, we all need to have nothing but wine. Good. Do you, are you red or white? I like, I, don't discriminate. It depends yeah. on. <laughs> yes. Yes. Is my answer. Um, what is your, the, the question is what's your, what would your last meal be? But what's your favorite meal? I, I sound like a child, but a really good spaghetti, like <laughs> old school Italian spaghetti. Like there's an amazing restaurant in San Francisco called Delfina and their spaghetti is just to die for. And I know it's, it sounds like a child, but it's just, I, it's, if I, if that was the last thing I ate, I'd be happy. I thought you were going to say Kraft Mac and cheese when you said you're going to sound <laughs> like a child. I love that. Um, what's your biggest pet peeve? Disorganization. I'm looking around my desk, seeing if I'm qualify. <laughs> um, how about podcast? What's your favorite podcast? Truthfully, I don't listen to podcasts. Fair enough. Well, this can be your inaugural listen. That's um, right. <laughs> uh, my wife and I spend a disproportionate amount of our monthly spend now through Amazon, Ooh. given Amazon Fresh and everything else that we get for our kiddos. How about you? What's your Amazon percent of spend on a monthly basis? 
That's a great question. I actually had a goal of investigating this, because, I, but then I'm actually scared to know the answer. I bet you it's 50% or something. I have no idea. Something ridiculous. Yeah. So I hear you. I, um, I, I did not purposefully investigate it. Um, we, you know, so many things are on auto ship and the Amazon fresh. We got the Amazon prime, um, credit card. Cause you get an unbelievable set of, um, hmm. points back and, and all those things. And now at whole foods, you get, I think it's like 5% off at whole foods just for using the card. And, um, I'd never seen how much we were spending on a monthly basis. And now all Amazon and Whole Foods spend is on one card. It's like, oh no, I might've been better not to know this, but um, <laughs> I'm long Amazon for sure. Um, what TV show could you watch over and over and over again? I do not watch TV. I have no time, but the only show that I do watch, and this makes me sound like an old person, I realize, is 60 Minutes. It's my favorite show. <laughs> my wife and I love 60 Minutes. It's a great show. That's where I first heard about CRISPR. So that's where that question came from. I'm glad I'm not from. alone, right? <laughs> um, I, I don't know, on, on a sidebar, if you've seen um, last week tonight on John Oliver, you said you, you don't watch much TV. They have a, a segment on there where they show how often 60 Minutes interviewers frame up someone to say exactly what they want them to say. And it's really funny. And then you realize how often they will ask a question to make sure that the person says exactly what they want them to say so that they can air it. And it's, um, it's changed my perspective on 60 minutes, but it's still a great show. Hmm. Um, what is your favorite article of clothing? And I, I assume you're probably going to say something from third love. So other than that, what's your favorite article of clothing? Uh, my black leather jacket, wear it with everything. Where's it from? Um, that's a good question. Rag and bone, maybe. Nice. Perfect for San Francisco. Um, exactly. You mentioned earlier you love Peloton, so I assume the answer is yes, but do you love or hate cardio? Love. Love it. I, I hate cardio. I do it because I have to. So, <laughs> um, would you rather fight off a hundred duck sized horses or one horse sized duck? <laughs> I'm going to go with one horse sized duck. That's, that's a, it's a scary thing. Um, <laughs> what is your favorite destination to travel to? You probably know this from my earlier answer, Colorado. Yeah. Do you have a favorite resort? Um, I love Vail. Yeah. Um, Aspen is great. Um, but honestly, so many great mountains in Colorado. Truly. I just went to Telluride for the first time this past winter. So and it pretty was, there. Yeah. I'd never been there. It was really, really special. Uh, and then lastly, what's the best gift that you have ever received? Uh, my favorite gift of late has been a vase that my daughter made me at preschool. And it's it's beautiful. And I have it on my desk. And I fill it up with flowers every week. And I love it. And That's really special. It's just, you know, it's a, it's, I, I, everyone likes a, a homemade gift, right? Yeah. Well, um, Heidi, one of the things you called out in this interview was all the things that you are able to say no to now. So I feel even more privileged to have taken an hour of your time. I really appreciate <laughs> what was a great conversation. I'll look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks for um, our CEO retreat. And then uh, where can people find your company and you online if they wanted to reach out to you or learn a little bit more about you or your company? Yeah. So we only sell through our own website. It's thirdlove.com. Uh, me personally, my email is Heidi at third love and I'm, I'm pretty active on Instagram. I would say that's the social platform that I'm on the most and post things both about third love leadership, female founders, and my kids. So it's a good mix of all good things. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for a great conversation. Look forward to hearing feedback from this interview and uh, hope everybody enjoyed it as much as we did. Thanks, Heidi. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Kevin S. Lavelle, and you can also go to founders15.com for show notes and other episodes. Thank you. Thank you.